Our Father, the last song that we sung declares that you have been faithful to your promises and the Messiah has come. And our Lord Jesus, the eternal Son, incarnate in flesh, you did come with a body broken and blood spilled out on the cross for us and for the forgiveness of our sin. You were, in one sense, the ignoble one from the perspective of men shamed on the cross and yet from the perspective of God, from eternal divine perspective, it was your glory on display and the glory of God on that cross because it was there that your character and your faithfulness and your word and your authority and your grace and your love and your justice and your power were all put on display. And so we glory in the cross because you glory in the cross and because we see in you Christ there the accomplishment of all of our hope and in you. And so as we look at this passage in First Peter this morning, we ask that you would strengthen in us our faith, that you would encourage us as we will consider our identity in you, the great grace that we've received, and that you would stir up in us and compel in us a desire to be bold witnesses and proclaimers of this truth and of your glory, as Peter calls us to through your word this morning. So to this end, we pray in your name, Jesus, who died and rose again for us. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles to First Peter, the book of First Peter. You might wonder if we're ever going to get finished with this section, verses 6 through 10, but we are, or verses 4 through 10, but we are this morning. Uh, and believe it or not, in as much time as we spent there, we're still only scratching the surface of all that is behind these incredible words that put on the page for us by Peter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, as I've mentioned before, when we come to 1 Peter, it's broken up. He's writing to a suffering people, and he's breaking up this, uh, his letter in really two, two ways. The first, he reminds, he gives his greeting, and he lays down a doctrinal foundation of our hope in Christ, and then he gives these slew of instructions that come out of it. He's doing the same thing here in chapter 2. He's giving us laying down the doctrine of our distinction in Christ, our belonging to Christ, and then the rest of the letter is going to lay out the instructions that flow out of that doctrinal reality. And he begins here, as we notice, is by reminding us of the distinction that we have in Christ. We have this privileged distinction of being in Christ. Other than, or separate from all of the world, we are those who have been called to faith in Jesus Christ, who have experienced the mercy of God and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, moving us from darkness to light, from condemnation to salvation. And in Christ, we have a hope that is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. And on the basis of that hope, we, as believers, demonstrate our participation in this salvation by the holiness that it produces, that we walk in the fear of God, that we walk in holiness as He is holy, that we walk in obedient love. And so prove ourselves to be children of God, children of God. And so what marks out the church as being distinct from the world is our identity in Christ and the fruit that that identity produces, which is namely a demonstration of the life of Christ in us. 
And so when we come to chapter 2, verse 4, Peter has reminded us, again by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that we as believers who have experienced the regenerating work of God have been opened to see His glory as the living stone, as the precious stone, as the precious one given to us by God. So that when we as believers, if you know Christ, you look at Him and you see the glory of God. You see everything that is beautiful, everything that is precious, everything that your soul desires. You long to feed Him on Him. You long to trust Him. You long to follow Him. You've rested your soul and your eternal well-being and your good on Christ. But that is not so for the world. For the world, of which we were a part before grace, he is not seen as precious, he is not seen as glorious, he is, in fact, reprehensible. He is offensive. He is one to be hated and one to be rejected, which he says there again in verse 4. He has been rejected by men. And so there's different evaluations on Christ. We who here, I assume all of us here, look at Christ and He is all of those wonderful things that delight our soul. He's the one we seek after. He's the one we long for. Uh, outside of these walls and in our neighbors and neighborhoods and our families and co-workers and so forth and the world in general, He's not that at all. He's none of those things. He is to be discarded. He is, in fact, an offense. And so He says there in verse Seven, this precious value of those who see Christ, who come to him, who know him, is for us who believe, but for those who disbelieve, he is in fact, again, to be rejected, and he is a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And why is he a stumbling stone and a rock of offense? Well, because his very person is a confrontation to everything that sin hates, our fallen condition hates, namely... In the person of Christ, he has absolute authority. He is the exclusive and the only way to God. He is, in fact, the divine representation of God. He is the image of his glory. And all of those things are an affront to human pride. To human pride. And so, Peter has established for us that we are this unique, called-out group from among the world. And we are distinguished in our uniqueness by our love for Jesus Christ, by our experience of his life, that we are, as he describes us in verse 5, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, and we are marked by offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, which is really everything that we offer to God through our faith in Christ that is motivated and empowered by the Holy Spirit's ministry within us, the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's what marks our life. Those are the sacrifices that are pleasing to God. Now, I mentioned last week in this section... We looked at this particularly through two big themes that are behind it. One is the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. That's a mystery that we're not going to untangle this side of heaven. We simply yield to those two parallel truths laid out before us in Scripture. And so the reality is, is that God is the one who laid and placed Christ as Redeemer, as Savior, as Mediator before all men. He held Him up. He was publicly displayed in His work, to use the language of Paul in Romans 3. He has not done these things in a corner, but for all to see. And He's held Him up as a display, particularly, and even as we just sang, of His glory. And yet, 
uh, we did not see that glory of our own. If you know Christ, there was a decisive moment in your life where you went from seeing Christ as merely another good person or merely as a religious figure or merely as a doctrinal truth with no feeling of the power of the gospel of grace in your heart, putting to death sin and pursuing righteousness. And there was a decisive change that came about. And all of those things became different for you and your view of Christ changed and your love for and your loves changed and so on. And the reason that that's so is as Peter began the lesson or his uh, epistle is because God has chosen us. We are that because of the foreknowledge of God, because of the work of the Spirit, because we have been sprinkled with his blood, because we have been caused to be born again. Those who remain yet in the darkened state are because not though God causes that sin and darkness, but he does leave men to the consequences of their own sin, and that is a sovereign decision of his. And so there is this mystery that God must redeem the sinner by this sovereign work of regeneration out of which flows faith and repentance. And yet there is the other side of that too, that we must believe, we are responsible to believe and suffer the consequences. Now with that as sort of a lead-in to where we left off last week with verse 8 of chapter 2, Peter now transitions, and what I'm going to focus on this week, or what I want to categorize this or break up this week, what we'll consider, is then our identity in Christ and our proclamation of Christ as Christians. As Christians, as those, as he says, who were called out of darkness into light, we have a very unique identity. And with these verses, verses 9 through 10, Peter is sort of summarizing everything that he said and forming a transition into all the commands that are going to come later. And he does that by reminding us of who we are in Christ by God's sovereign grace and what we are then to proclaim about God. Let me begin in verses, uh, chapter 2, and I'll just read uh, the whole section for context, and, but we'll look at verses 9 through 10. So read along with me at chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. He says, And coming to him as to living stones, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone, a precious stone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So what is our identity in Christ? Our identity in Christ is that we are a people who are chosen, we are set apart unto God, we are a people who have as the banner over our lives that we, are, we stand in mercy. We have received the mercy of God. And they're based on this identity. Our proclamation is of the glories of the ones who made it so. Who made it so. Now again, as I mentioned, Peter is 
writing to those who are feeling the pressures of this world. And so this identity in Christ is of the utmost importance because they are, they are laying hold of this and we are laying hold of this identity amid a kingdom that does not hold precious what we hold precious. And so the reminder here is to us that Hold on, because God counts you as precious, and God counts His saving grace that has been granted to you as established and certain. And so regardless of how the estimation of the world views God, His work, and you know that He is accomplishing His sovereign purpose. And that's why he began in verse 6 with, This is contained in Scripture. One of the greatest declarations of God's sovereignty is prophecy. Is prophecy, the fact that God can declare the end from the beginning. None could do that who does not have absolute and sovereign power, who is not the ruler over all things. But God does that, and God declares that his work is going to be located and accomplished through his son, and he declares, he declares that we who are in his son will receive every benefit that has been gained for us in Christ. And so when we, when we look at these descriptions, particularly in verse 9, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, God's sovereign purposes stand over that, but there is something behind that that we should read and think of when we consider our identity, and namely this, that you, if you belong to Jesus Christ, if you who are, are a Christian... You have this banner particularly that lies over your entire life. Namely this. That you are eternally loved by God. You are eternally loved by God. Before God called one molecule into existence. You were by your very name in his heart. And a part of his divine affections. You are one whom he intended and indeed created all things so that he would redeem and call you into intimate fellowship with himself through his son to grant you every blessing and privilege that comes along with that. That is what is behind God's sovereign choice. You are loved by God. You are kept by God, you are set apart by God, you are sustained by that love, and you will inherit everything that he has granted to his son through the accomplishment of redemption. That's really the heart of sovereign grace and sovereign mercy. He says then again in verse 9, he begins by saying, you are a chosen race. And let's just consider these, and we'll spend most of our time, but we'll definitely get to the end. And understanding how Peter lays out our identity in Christ. Building on things that he, of course, has already established. Namely, back in verse 5, this spiritual house, holy priesthood, that we are in... We are the reality of all that the temple pointed to. We are the new dwelling place of God. No longer is it in Jerusalem. No longer is it, is it in stone walls in the Holy of Holies before the Ark of the Covenant. It is the people in whom God indwells by His Spirit. And here he says, he begins by saying, you are a chosen race. You are a chosen race. Again, you are a people that God has determined to set his love and affection. This quote comes from Isaiah chapter 43. It's the most direct correlation. Let me just read that for you. 
Isaiah chapter 43, he says this in verses 20 through 21. Now, he's writing in Isaiah, again, I mentioned in the scripture reading, he's writing to people who, are, who have experienced captivity, who have experienced being expelled from the land, and he's encouraging, them to, he's encouraging them with his deliverance. He's writing to a generation whom he's going to deliver. And so he says this in chapter 43, verse 20, he says, The beasts of the field will glorify me, the jackals and the ostriches, ostriches, Because I have given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. The people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. The people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. And God is encouraging them with the fact that he is faithful to his covenant. God is encouraging them to the fact that they are the people of his special affection and he will deliver them. He's encouraging them with regardless of what things look like right now. That is not how they will always be because I am your God and my promises and my love stand over you. My ultimate purposes are not for your judgment, but they are for your deliverance. And he he cements this promise to them with these precious words. You are my chosen people. You're not any people. You're not like the other nations. You are a people whom I have chosen. You are a people whom, on whom I've set my affection. You are a people whom he says, I formed for myself. I formed for myself. And you are a people who, though now experiencing captivity, will declare my praise because of deliverance. The deliverance, though, what I want us to notice here, is specifically attached to God's sovereign purposes for them as his chosen people. His chosen people. It's because he chose them as a nation. They are not going to be delivered from anything within themselves. They are going to be delivered because God has set his affection on them. Uh, One other just brief mention of this uh, same language is in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. I'll just read this. If you want to turn there, it's Deuteronomy 7 verses 6 through 9. Now God is addressing a people generations earlier who are have the second generation of those who have been delivered out of Israel. This is the generation that will enter into the land of Canaan, the land of promise. And so Moses is encouraging them with their identity in God and the responsibility that flows out of that. So he says in verse 6, You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation and with those who love him and keep his commandments. Now there's two basic points here that he's encouraging them with. One is that he did not call them from anything within themselves. So it wasn't because he looked at Israel and there was any strength, there were any particular moral qualities or fortitude, that God said, this is the people who, because of something innate and inherent to them, will be my glory on the earth. No, actually it's just the opposite. God says, it is because of your littleness, and it is because of your smallness and your insignificance that I have called you. 
It's because of what you are not that I have made you what you are. It's because of who you are not that I will make you into all that I have determined to make you into as my nation is my people. Notice secondly, just his observation, his choice of them was then entirely grounded in his own choice to love them and out of faithfulness to his promise to Abraham. They are a nation because God made a promise to Abraham. Abraham, who was an idolater. Abraham, who was a pagan. Mentioned in Judges, or Joshua. Abraham, who was an unbeliever. God called him out from his place. God made him a promise. God established him as the one through whom he would form a people and through whom his goodness and salvation to the world would come. God did that. And he did that because he chose to love Abraham. Now, that's the background to our own identity in 1 Peter. You are a chosen race. You are a chosen race. What does that mean for us in terms of our identity? Well, we're not descendants of Abraham. We're not a part of the Jewish race. We are not a race of physical liturgy, but we are a race of spiritual identity with Christ. As Israel is the chosen people of God, descended from Abraham, we are the chosen people of God by virtue of our union with Christ, our faith in Christ. Let me just, I won't read all the passages on that, but let me just give you Romans 4, 16. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. There is a particular covenant given to the chosen people of Israel that has as its boundaries the physical lineage of Abraham. And then there is within that, and in the new covenant, this promise given to the true heart and essence of God's saving grace what was accomplished with the coming of Christ, namely to a people who aren't of physical lineage, but who have trusted in him who, have, who has fulfilled every promise, namely Christ. And so that we are of the race of the people of God who are united to Christ. And so there's no longer any distinction that the law brought about, the, the distinction of the commandments of Moses and the Mosaic law and the priesthood and all of those things. We are a race of people who are identified completely by our union with Christ. And so he says in Galatians 3, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. By the way, for those, you know, some use this verse just as a footnote here, uh, to say that there are no distinctions in roles between male and female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. Uh, That's not Peter's point. There is the distinction of headship and submission between male and female by God's design. This verse is saying nothing to that. He is talking only and simply about our spiritual equality in Christ. All who are in Christ, no matter what you are, Jew, Greek, slave or free man, male or female, have the same access and the privilege to Jesus Christ. He says in verse 29, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. So we are then a chosen race of all of the people of the earth. 
We are those whom God has chosen to bring near to himself. And as with Israel, we are a chosen race, not because of something good found in you. God did not call you or me because of any moral fortitude. Again, anything of spiritual goodness, anything that he saw that he said, oh, I really like that person. They're great. I want them as my own. None of those things. We are a chosen race because God called us, as we'll later proclaim, out of darkness into his marvelous light. So who are we of ourselves? Our identity of ourselves? Well, Paul says this, Consider your calling, brethren. There weren't many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame those which are strong, the base things of the world to despise. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So apart from grace, who are you? You are unnoble. You are weak. You are foolish. You are shameful. You are not strong. You are despised. But who are we in Christ? We are counted as righteous, sanctified, and set apart to his purposes. We are counted as the redeemed. Now what's important to notice then here, one is the great privilege, not only that, but the great humility that comes out of this identity. What makes you different than those who reject and those who stumble over Christ? Well, nothing makes you different. If you are a part of the people of God, you are a part of the people of God because God set his love on you. Because God made you a chosen race. As he called Israel because of her weakness and out of all of the nations, so he called you. In our natural state, we would not accept the things of the Spirit of God. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. Paul says this in Titus, We were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and in envy and hateful and hating one another. We were blinded by the God of this world and held captive by Him to do His will. That's who we were. But who we are are chosen, elect, loved of God receiving his great promises, all of the benefits that are in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are a people who have received mercy. We are loved by God, chosen. That's when you hear chosen, that's what you should think of, loved by God, loved by God in his son. And that is the encouragement here. You are a chosen race. You've been called out of the darkness of the world. And so the world may reject, the world may ridicule, the world may shame, but we are uniquely and eternally loved by God. And nothing can separate us from this love. I won't read the whole passage, but in the midst of a people who are persecuted, listen to what Paul says. You can just note this in Romans 8. He says, You're being put to death all day long, considered a sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Election, which is what he is emphasizing here, is an overwhelming foundation for our humility, for our hope, and for our holiness. You are a chosen race. You are a people of God. You are those whom he's called to himself. 
And then he says, you are a royal priesthood. You are a royal priesthood. This is drawn from Exodus 19, verses 5 through 6. Let me just read it for you so you can hear the background. Exodus 19, again, he's laying here establishing his law to those whom he's bringing into the land, whom he called out of Egypt. He says this, verse 5. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. That is sovereignty. That is glory and holiness. And me who is glorious in holiness and who rules over the whole earth said, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. You are a chosen race. You are elected. You are called by God. You have received sovereign grace. And you have been called as a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. Of course, priesthood, we already mentioned, has few ideas here. Here he's speaking not to that special class descended from Aaron of the tribe of Levi. He's referring to them as a nation. What does that mean? As a priesthood, then they and we, for us, is to say that they were the the receivers of God's revelation and they were the ones through whom they were the mediators of God's revelation to the world. They are a people also who were brought near to God. That was the idea of the priesthood, was near in the temple area, and God's presence dwelt among them in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And they are a people who, as the bearers of the witness of the truth of God, are also the ones through whom the world came to God because of that witness. And you are a royal priesthood. That's our role among the earth, is God. The world, if the church didn't exist and wasn't a witness to God, would know nothing of him, would know nothing of him. There would be zero knowledge of God if you didn't exist, if we weren't here this morning, if God had not called you to himself. You, the church, the church gathered, but the church as a body of believers are a priesthood. In other words, we are God's witness in this world and we alone are God's witness in this world. We alone of all of the world have been brought near to God in the most intimate fellowship and closeness. If anyone is to know to God, it is going to come through the witness of the church, the witness of the gospel. So we are a royal priesthood, but notice what he says here, a royal priesthood. If you look back up at verse 5, he says you are a holy priesthood. And they're using that adjective holy to emphasize being set apart from the world and sin. Here he adds the adjective royal with this idea. We are priests of the king. That's the idea. We are priests in a royal household. To be a part of the spiritual house is to be the new temple of God. It's God's house who is king over all of the earth. We are priests in it. We are priests of the king. That's the idea. We've been called into his house, him who is king of kings and lord of lords. We are a priesthood of noble distinction. Again, this stands in direct contrast to the shame that God's people feel by the world. But in God's eyes are of the most noble birth. And remember what he says, he who believes in him will not be disappointed. A better translation there will not be shamed, will not be ashamed. Why? Because we are priests of the king. We are a part of his spiritual house in a position of honor. 
We are, he says next, a holy nation. A holy nation. Also drawn from that passage in Exodus 19. It's already been noted that the idea of a holy is the idea of separation. The the key idea. It's separated from the world. Separated from sin. Separated not only from those things, but unto God and unto righteousness. Israel was set apart from all of the nations of earth to receive a special purpose of God among the world and to be recipients of his promise and to live in righteousness before him. Church is a holy nation. We are a holy nation because we are a people under a king. We are citizens of a kingdom. We are citizens of a kingdom where our king administers his rule through his word and by his spirit. It was scripture empowered by the Holy Spirit. As a holy nation, we are set apart unto the purposes of God in this world. As a holy nation, we are those who have been made holy and been made to participate in the life and the work of Christ. We are, many of you come from a Catholic background. And you know, if you're really, really spiritual, then you're a saint, right? And you might get a church named after you. But that's not what it is for us who are For the new covenant believer, all of us are saints set apart as holy ones before God because we are set apart in Christ. We are a holy nation unto God, holy in our position, and we are to be holy in our conduct. And so he's already made that clear in verse 15, like the holy one who called you, be holy yourselves in your behavior. You shall be holy for I am holy. And we share his divine nature in second peter he'll say his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his excellent his own glory and excellence by these he's granted us his precious and magnificent promises so that we may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust so we are a holy nation. We've been set apart from God and we are to demonstrate that in our lives. So what ultimately then marks you as a citizen of the kingdom isn't membership in a church. It isn't religious affiliation. It isn't any of those things. It's not even church attendance. It's not even activity in ministry. What sets us apart as being a part of this holy nation is holiness in conduct. It is that our lives match our position and so affirm us as being citizens of God's kingdom. I, there's one illustration, just from other reading I was doing this week, but it fit exactly here. There is, uh, in, the, in the early history of the church, uh, an account of a young woman by the name of, I'll try to pronounce this as best I can, George isn't here to correct me, uh, Poda Maina, Poda Maina. And, and she was a, a young, by all accounts, probably a young slave girl who became a Christian. And of course, as a young slave girl, she was completely uh, beholden to the desires of her master. And often slaves in that time, particularly young slaves girl, although it wasn't limited to girls, they were the sexual objects of their master, whatever their desires were. They could be used by them. Well, this young woman, this young woman named Potamayina, who was a Christian... Uh, would not give in to the advances of her master. And by doing so, he actually accused her then of being a Christian. She is known, as it said one ancient writer, for the preservation of her purity and chastity, in which indeed she was eminent. 
And she would not yield to the passion of her master. And even before the judge and her torturers, which included this, the torture, burning pitch being poured little by little over various parts of her body, from the sole of her feet to the crown of her head. And yet through it all, she would not yield her testimony of faith in Christ, and she would not yield her sexual purity, which was very distinct at that time. As a result, of, I mean, in other words, uh, she wouldn't go with what her culture dictated. And as a result of her faithfulness, one of her executioners, and this was actually the point of the story, named Basilides, became a Christian, as well as one ancient writer says, many others in Alexandria. What's the point of that? Her holiness, her living consistent with her position in Christ, was a powerful witness to the world. It was through her witness, it was through her pursuit of purity that she marked herself off as being a Christian. That's what the first accusation that came. Oh, you won't do this. You must be a Christian. You won't recant. You must be a Christian. And through that witness, salvation came to others. Salvation came to others. The point here is that she is a, we are a holy nation. We are a nation that is distinct from the world. Don't be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is perfect and acceptable, that which is pleasing to him. We are a holy nation. We have been set apart unto God. We influence the world, and here is the key. We influence the world not by our likeness to it, but by our distinction from it. Not by our likeness to the world. We have large portions of the church who spend a lot of energy trying to look as much like the world as they possibly can. And that's exactly the opposite of what our identity should say. No, we're not like the world. We are to be distinct from the world. We are a chosen people. We are a priesthood. And we are a holy nation. A holy nation. And this is a particular encouragement too, I would say, just as a side note, to these people. And to other Christians in the world. Because they were a people without a nation. They were a people without a home. Remember that he's writing to those, he says, who are, reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. These are a people without a nation. I, I think in thinking about that, what came to mind were all the refugees. If we remember Pastor Peter, a friend of the... Rodriguez's that was here last week and he was saying one of the ministries that they have particularly is to the many refugees which come near to where they are escaping persecution these are people without a home who live in these these camps these temporary camps they have no home they have no country they're a displaced people how precious it would be for those who are in that condition in this world and that would include many Christians as well who say that No, we may be displaced in this world, but we are a part of a holy nation. We are a part of a people who have been set apart to God. And even still, even if we don't have that same kind of displacement of our earthly nation, we are strangers and aliens here. This isn't our home. We're so thankful to live under all the the benefits of being an American. But America is not our home. America can fall America, like other nations, will rise and will fall. It will be no more. But this promise will never change in this identity that we are a part of the holy nation of God. And then he says this in this most precious language. In this most precious language. We are a people for God's own possession. A people for God's own possession. 
How tender that is. Uh, This comes from a few different passages, but one in which it's most direct is in Malachi. Malachi chapter 3. Malachi, as you may remember, was the last book in our canon before we come into the New Testament. It was the last word of God to his people before the appearing of Jesus Christ. And he says this in chapter 3, and and, and sadly, as is the whole history of Israel, Malachi, in Malachi, God is addressing the nation as a disobedient nation, a nation who had the form of religion, but they did not have its power. They did not have its reality. They had the sacrifices, they had the priesthood, they had the temple, but they had no love for God. They had no spiritual reality. They were devoid of righteousness. And so in Malachi, he As he does throughout the prophets, as you read, and even really in the historical sections of the Old Testament, his judgment is always intermixed with his promise of redemption. Always. Always in the midst of judgment is a promise of redemption, a promise of a future, a promise of a glory that is coming. And so it is here in Malachi. He says this, beginning in verse 16. He says, then those who, well, let me actually begin in, Verse 14, you have said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. In other words, righteousness is of no benefit, but to walk in our own way, that will be our blessing. But then he says in verse 16, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. And so you will distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one one who does not serve him. And so the, the general idea here is this, that God is saying that now you are being persecuted and maligned, you are among a people who have rejected my way, but those who are mine, who are marked by fearing the Lord and those who esteem his name will be set apart as belonging to God on the day of judgment when he makes that separation. The wicked will be shown to be wicked, and the righteous who belong to him will be shown to be his own possession. Those who are near to him. Those who are dear to him. So it's a statement then that encourages the righteous. Do not be intimidated by the abuse of the arrogant, even the religious. God will make plain those who are his on that day. He says, you are a people for God's own possession. You are a people for God's own possession. The world may reject, again, but God owns you as his own. God owns you as those who are his own and his dear son. As Paul said to Timothy, the Lord knows those who are his. The Lord knows those who are his. And then jump down to verse 10, just briefly. He says, for you were once, this is another description of our identity. You were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
You are a people who are chosen, eternally loved by God. You are a people brought near to be His witnesses, to be close to Him. You are a holy nation who has been set apart for the purposes of God and to live unto Him. You are a people who are God's own possession, whom He owns as His own, and He will vindicate on that day. And you are a people who have received mercy. You are a people who have received mercy. That's your identity. Who are you? You are people who have received the mercy of God. That's your identity in Christ. You may not feel like it with the trials. He says you've been distressed by various trials. James tells us we have various trials in this world. We know that just by reality, the life we live. But in all of those, your identity is not one forsaken by God, but you are one who has received mercy. One who has received mercy. Now this quote you may know comes from Hosea chapter 1 verse 10 and chapter 2 verse 23. And again, as is common, it's a nation that's rejected by God because of their rejection of him, verse 9. And here though, we have this dramatic picture that you're well familiar with in Hosea. When God told the prophet Hosea to go and marry essentially a prostitute and to love a woman who will be unfaithful to you. He says in verse 3, Go again and love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and they love raisin cakes. Speaking of their idolatry. And so the whole picture of Hosea in this context of the metaphor of marriage, he says, you are an unfaithful people. And he says, Hosea, go and marry a woman who is going to be unfaithful to you. She's going to be hard-hearted, and no matter how much you love her, she's going to follow her own ways. No matter how much you care for her, and no matter how many times you rescue her, she's going to remain rejecting of your love. But you love her because that's my love for my people. My love for my people. And ultimately then, in his redemption of this rebellious people, in his redemption of this people who have rejected him, he says, I will sow for myself, in chapter 2, verse 23, sow her her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. In other words, I'm going to turn their hearts, ultimately, so that they won't be the objects of my judgment, but will be the objects of my mercy. The objects of my mercy. And he says, such are you, Christian. Such are you who belong in the church of God. You were once not a people. You were once a people whom Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 2 as without God and having no hope in this world. You were once a people who were estranged from God, under the enmity of God. You were at hostility with God, but now you are a people who have received mercy. You are a people who have received mercy. God has seen your plight. God has known your misery. God has seen your destruction. And God has had mercy. He's rescued you. He's pulled you out of the plight of your sin, the enslavement to your rebellion, your darkness, your rejection of him. He's pulled you out. He's changed all of that and he's shown you mercy. Mercy. And you are now the people 
of God, the people of God. Ultimately, the redemption would come because of what God would provide in Christ. He was the stone, he says, foreknown before the foundation of the world. He is the one who brought redemption with his precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless. He is the one who has made this mercy possible. He is the one in whom you have been brought near. And so the idea of here, so this has a particular this has a particular validity still to the nation of Israel under the old covenant to the Jewish nation, but it has included, it also includes here Gentiles. We, as with believing Jews, have been acquired through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. We, as with the believing Jews, have received mercy. Remember Paul said the gospel is for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. It's to the Jews. Salvation came through the Jews. Salvation was offered first to the Jews. But then it was expanded to the Gentiles. And so we partake of this promise as well. That we are now also the people of God and those who have received mercy. He's broadening out the application here. And so this is the banner over our lives. This means then that, just as a footnote, what is a, and then before we get to this last point quickly, is it means this, what is the, it means we are a people who have received mercy. Yes, there's the humility and, and all of that. But it means then that we deal with God as blood-bought children. Whatever trial, whatever burden you have, we don't, we don't appeal to God as one who is a harsh taskmaster, but we appeal to God as one who delights in showing mercy. Delights, we are a people who have received mercy. He delights in showing mercy. He knows our weakness. He knows our failings. And he is a merciful, merciful God. So much to say there, but let's just look briefly at verse 9. The other part of the last part of verse 9. And so what is our responsibility? We're identified then as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, a people of God who have received mercy, so that, in the middle of verse 9, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that's the proclamation of the gospel that we proclaim to a people who are in darkness to come to the light of Christ. Paul said, or God said to Paul, that he is sending him to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. We are on a rescue mission, as it were. We are, we are those who have re- been called from darkness to light and we are those who call others from darkness to light. And how do we do that? By proclaiming the excellencies of him who has done so. The excellencies of him who has done so. What are his excellencies? Really, this would include every display of the glory of God that is related to our redemption. Every excellency of God's glory contained in Scripture, every excellency of His being, every excellency that was displayed at the cross in creation and the redemption of man. We do not preach ourselves, 
But we preach the one in whom all of these excellencies are realized. We preach Christ Jesus. We preach Christ Jesus. So what do we declare about God? I'm just going to give you a running list and I won't even read all the verses that I had attached here. But we declare what? We declare his triune nature. He is unlike any other God. He is not the God of Islam. He is not the God of unbelieving Judaism. He is the God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. He is Father, He is Son, and He is Holy Spirit. He is unique. He alone is God who could accomplish redemption. We declare His holiness. We read it from Isaiah earlier there as well as, I am God and there is no other. We declare that he is in, in him is light and there is no darkness at all. We declare his absolute perfection and comprehensive purity out of which alone we can become aware of our own sin and our own need for redemption. How would we be reconciled to this holy God? In doing so, we declare his justice. We declare his righteousness that has been displayed at the cross. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a satisfaction in His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. He passed over previous sins for the demonstration of His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We declare that God's justice is met and satisfied only in the person of Christ at the cross. We declare that there God has satisfied his own justice on our behalf. And God has extended his righteousness through Christ to us. We declare his wisdom. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him that it might be paid back again? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory. We proclaim the wisdom of his plan, the wisdom of his sovereignty, the wisdom that he accomplished in redemption, the wisdom that is encapsulated in the fullness of the person of Jesus Christ. We declare his truth and his faithfulness. As Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Faithful is he who called you and he will bring it to pass. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope for he who promised is faithful. God is faithful to his promises. We declare his sovereignty and authority. We declare his love, that God demonstrated his love to us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We declare his mercy and we declare every excellency as it is in Jesus Christ. What do we declare? His holiness, his justice, his righteousness, his truth, his faithfulness, his sovereignty, his authority, his love, his glory, his mercy, his grace. We declare Christ. That is the excellency of God. And he is the content of our proclamation. And this is the wonder then of our identity. We are a people who belong as a special possession to God. And our one proclamation as the church should be His glory. His glory. Our one as a church and as individuals should be this. He must, I must decrease so that He may increase. In the light of His glory all else fades away. He alone is exalted in our hearts and our lives and in our praise and in our proclamation. He alone is the one we want to receive all glory. He is alone the one we want to live for. And so his glory in Christ is, the, is not only our salvation, but 
at the essence of our glad proclamation. Let me end just with this little line from a hymn we know. Long, and we, we sing this with glad hearts. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. I have been chosen, I have received mercy, and I proclaim the glories of him who's called me. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your mercy to us and your dear son. Thank you for our identity in Christ. Help us to lay hold of them. How we understand ourselves as the special recipients of your grace, as called to your holy purposes in this world, has everything to do with how we live in it. How we view ourselves, our circumstances, our purpose for being here. Which is not merely to live and enjoy as much as we can in this world in the least amount of pain. It is to live as citizens of a nation that lives under the rule of its king, namely Christ. Help us to live holy. Help us to live humbly. Help us to live in hope. Help us to live as a people who have received mercy and extend mercy. And help us to be faithful in our proclamation. We would never want ourselves to get mixed up in the message that is to contain your glory alone. And is for your glory. And so keep us faithful to this charge. Dismiss us in your grace. In your name, Jesus. Amen. So we have fellowship dinner. And a mutiny. Uh, so, am I to stay up here? You can stay there. Okay. Well, y'all are packing, right? A few of you. <laughs> we just we just need at least five minutes of your time. That's all. Yeah, I, I don't know if y'all know this, but uh, Joey, uh, Pastor Joey, has been with us ten years now. Uh, hard to believe, uh, but uh, it is. Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> seems like yesterday, but, uh, you know, it's interesting when we were looking for a pastor, uh, we, uh, you know, if you go back 10 years, and I'll try to keep this short, but, uh, you know, we uh, were looking for a pastor for uh, three years, and we couldn't uh, uh, come to a unanimous, uh, I guess, vote, and you think, uh, well, you know, sometimes in the church that's difficult with a lot of people, but uh, we didn't have a lot of people, and uh, so um, three years we looked uh, for a pastor. And uh, Joey was the first...
thank you, uh, who've tolerated me for 10 years, those who've been that long. Um, and thank you, my heart is for you. And so let's go downstairs, those of us who are here, and if hope you'll stay for a little while and we can enjoy some fellowship. May the Lord bless you.